Welcome to Bread and Milk. I'm Naomi Devlin and I'll be taking you on a soothing ramble through the food memories and life stories of some of my favourite people. This week's guest is my friend and colleague, Steve Lamb, who needs no introduction other than to say he is a charcuterie impresario and that he often presents stages at festivals. And my favourite Steve memory is when he was presenting with Melissa Hemsley, he claimed to, (laughs) who they both know, uh, Gary Barlow. He claimed that Gary Barlow had written Everything Changes But You for him, and Melissa believed him. And I just thought, that's a perfect Steve moment. So enjoy. Was that the Pink Panther? Yes. <laughs> that's the that's the noise of Steve doing computer biz. Yeah. In uh, your in your head, it's like do 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 making changes on my computer. I said ten to one. Steve, are you okay? <laughs> It's at this point I need to let you know that Steve was doing something uh, where he uh, makes a kind of grin and sticks his lips onto his teeth so you can just see his teeth. And it's something that we often do to each other when we see each other at River Cottage and it absolutely reduces me to a pile of giggles. So I just thought I'd include that for you and so that you know, because obviously it's a, it's a physical theatre thing, so you know what we're talking about. It is sticky lip where you stick your lips to your teeth. That is a great look. Actually, we've discussed that before. Nick won't let me do that. That's just not on. It's so funny, isn't it? Yeah. Occasionally I find myself doing it and I'm like, oh, I must well, let him see it. While he's not looking. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever he's not looking, I'm like that. <laughs> <laughs> I could uh, live off that. I could yeah, live. Yeah. You know, there's a whole new sort of, are you doing sticky lip? Like, like <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Or every time they look away, you're just doing something yeah. different. <laughs> what a repertoire. God, it would be a hoot, wouldn't it, just to do that? Well, I'm considering it now. (laughs) Yeah, so anyway. I went to, I did a couple of days teaching at Ashburton. Oh, yeah. uh, Which is just lovely. It was so lovely to be back teaching in person. And I'd kind of, I was really anxious about it and thinking, Mm. oh, what will it be like? And will I be anxious about, and I'm wearing a mask the whole day. It's not, you know, so it's wearing a mask and they're all wearing masks and how will that be kind of uh, the the projection of my voice even? How will that work? Yeah. And it was absolutely fine. And I wasn't anxious and it just felt so good to be back with people. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I did two days at Vale House this weekend, just gone. And, you know, it was it, it's good. And I actually, although I'm teaching the subjects as, as you do that I know really well, it felt quite fresh. I felt, I felt, oh, I've, my sort of knowledge and teaching style has kind of changed slightly, but I like it. Oh, that's really good. So how's it changed? Um, I kind of toned it down, you know, oh. because like smaller groups and, you know, it felt a bit more intimate. Yeah. You know, a bit more sort of, this is the knowledge, less, hey, this is my passion and I want to bring you on a journey and want you to love it too it was very much you know kind of tailored to who was in front of me Mm. and and I felt as if I was teaching maybe four or five different styles to different people as opposed to one yeah it was interesting that sounds really good I mean that's for me that's what I always aim for and that's why I don't like those huge groups because Mm. it's so hard to have uh, a meaningful connection with each student and then it's like once you have that connection you you feel like you've done something meaningful and people are taking away 
something real, don't you? Yeah. yeah. And the banter as well. I just think with smaller groups, you can get an in-joke with everyone. And then yeah. it's like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, you know, humour kind of does form part of my teaching style, but I think sometimes too much where I'm kind of, really, let's have a laugh. Whereas, you know, I think I'm becoming more subtle. Yeah. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. believe it. No. Well, <laughs> let's see after this, shall we? <laughs> yeah. No, I definitely. I was talking to, actually, I was talking to Darren, who runs Ashburton, and we were talking about doing less and less and less as you go on. And mm. like, it's like at the beginning, there's that desperate feeling of, I'm not enough. Mm. And I have to do more than almost as I'm capable of in the time. And it gives everyone this kind of feeling of anxiety and hurry. And it's just not, it's not necessary. It's not, all that stuff is not necessary. And yeah. just teaching a few skills and having a laugh and, and a lovely time is actually much more satisfying, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to teaching again. Whereas mm. previously I was thinking, oh, maybe I'm going to stop teaching. Partly to do with, oh, I don't want to do weekends. And part of it is, you know, maybe it's maybe I've come to the end of enjoying that, but no, it's, I've got. You do, yeah, I do. I think it's part of reassessing, isn't it? It's like that. That whole last eighteen months have been about what do I want to do and what bits are working for me, and and to be able to uh, step away from it and consider the possibility of doing something else, and then make the choice to do it yeah. is a really positive thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. My mum was a working mum and none of my mates had working mums and she was able to work because my nan, Hilda, lived with my mum and dad shortly after they were married and before my brother and I were born. And so generationally speaking, the food that I was exposed to was kind of, you know, a bit more historic uh than my uh, my mates and one of my earliest memories is that my nan she had a pan right she had one pan which I can still see had a blue handle and it sat on the back of the stove and it was solid creamy fat in it and it had bits of previous meals stuck in it like something from Jurassic Park and we would come home from school and she'd say do you want something to eat lads and we'd go oh yeah please nan and she'd turn the stove on and she'd bring this pan forward and I can see the pan going from this kind of opaque creamy whiteness of fat into this clear bubbling thing everything got cooked in that pan almost everything and it was always delicious and you know the fat would drip down your chin and you knew you were enjoying it when that happened and uh, she would put it to the back of the stove and never got washed not once did that pan get washed and I, I'm particularly proud of that and some people listening to your amazing podcast might be appalled by the notion of a pan that never got washed even more so that it was just caked in fat and when my nun died my mum who was a working mum I mean she just worked in every shop on Burnage Lane she wasn't a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that she just went out to work and when she took over the kitchen slightly unprepared but the things that she'd heard in the in the outer world were things like fat is bad and from then on we kind of had to be we stalk margarine came into the culinary uh, part of our lives uh, a nimble bread uh, do you know what I mean and and what started off as a really promising fantastic introduction to kind of food became oh I hear that fat's bad for you and therefore now I'm in charge of the kitchen I'm going to force this crap on you because everybody says it's good for you 
and it turns you into somebody who's nimble. And, you know, it, it was, I remember it just being a kind of a void, a dip. You can't be saying that everything you ate was fried. It pretty much was, you know. You know, that kind of luncheon meat from several different sources uh, put together in a, in a tin that you could open with a, with a key. Um, but we could, you weren't allowed to call it spam. It was peck chop pork, which was the Polish brand. Spam was, you know, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't call it spam. Well, because spam was in some way kind of inferior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like um, that. How to upsell spam. Or luncheon... Is it luncheon meat? Luncheon, luncheon meat. meat. Yeah, that's but the... see, that's too highfalutin. It had to had to be exotic peck chop pork. You know, that's 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 that, that was the root in for her. And you know, she was very creative. You know, frying that with a pineapple, amazing. That's Fry. very exotic, isn't it? You know, almost everything we ate came from tins. <laughs> <laughs> it was pecked up pork with tin pineapple. What, fried how? In batter? Oh, no, no, just in the same fat as the pecked up pork. Frying the pineapple in, yeah. the, in the fat, which I'm assuming was lard. Yes, it, it was, it was. And, you know, he just didn't know any better. You know, it, it's, it's pretty clear that I don't come from a very auspicious foodie background, you know, but... the. the it has to have had a major effect because here I am now and fat is essential to some of the things that I make in the cured world. Of course, I've turned it down a little bit uh, and have a bit more of a balanced diet. But I, that that really is one of my first memories. And, and I also remember that as a family, we never used to eat together which is a major concern to me now that I've got kids of my own. And it stems from the fact that my brother and I would come back from school and my nan would feed us in front of the telly on a little table, you know, kind of almost crouched over, must have given us terrible indigestion. I don't remember it because actually it wasn't so much a problem because we go straight out afterwards and run around playing football. And then my mum would come back from her work and they would eat, my nan and my mum would eat a different meal in the back room. And my dad, who was a bookie, who kind of kept all sorts of hours, would come back much later and uh, would have something else quite often or just bring it, a takeaway in. And, uh, you know, those, those times that we did eat together became really stressful. The, the one time around the table, would, it would be Christmas. Mm. And, you know, we just didn't know how to behave. And, oh, my God, Christmas. See, my family... A, a really big on portion size you know if it's big it's good Christmas dinner was again the same kind of portion uh, element to it and you know there was always this kind of you know jeopardy would the turkey it was always turkey would it defrost in time would it even fit in the oven you know and um, the turkey went in from the moment that my brother and I were able to open up our first present. And you know, it must have been somewhere between sort of like six and 7 a.m. And it was cooked until my dad came back from the pub with Uncle Roy. That was the cooking time. And that sort of, he never came back early. It was never undercooked. <laughs> and, and, and it kind of arrived at the table, this big flipping turkey that my mum could barely carry and plonked in front of us. And we go, hey, brilliant turkey. And we ate it and we had no idea it was crap. You know, we had no idea. And I'm not sort of dissing my mum's cooking. It's just that it was bone dry, mm. tasteless, low welfare. And we'd eat it with glee. And then this thing would keep on making revisits, encores to the table throughout the festive period. We still got more turkey getting drier and decidedly more awful throughout the time. But we thought it was brilliant. What were your kind of following meals then, the following days? Like, was it coronation chicken or was it sandwiches? It, it was, uh, yeah, it was sandwiches. A buffet. A buffet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, umpteen sort of, uh, it always ended with a kind of 
mild uh, sort of, I won't say curry because it, it wasn't spicy, but it was a just kind of combination of everything. Uh, but it, and Boxing Day was the best one because it was a sort of um, kind of bubble and squeak affair of everything from the Christmas meal just bunged together and, and reheated. And, and less stressful because it wasn't eaten altogether at the table. So what was it about all being at the table that was stressful then? Because you said, by the sounds of it, you were, you were still kind of excited by the, like the novel aspect of having a massive turkey, even though it was maybe not brilliantly cooked. But then because you weren't used to eating together, it's stressful. So Yeah, well, you know, that kind of discourse, that sort of chat and that sort of behaviour around the table, it, it kind of wasn't there. Mm. You know, it was a so it wasn't like a silent dining experience. See, my family are piss takers, right? And and it, it, and and the kind of it's their go-to. So you know, it, the, the the stress is alleviated by kind of taking the piss out of someone if they drop their fork, or you know, if they kind of. My mom always used to spill her food. And, you know, the joke would be that, Gene, okay, you're going to spill the food on your blouse. Every meal, almost, you know. And that, and that would kind of, that would be the atmosphere around the table waiting to, you know, pick on the weakest member around the table or, you know, taking the, taking the mickey. And, and it was fun and it was irreverent. It wasn't, it wasn't stressful. It was stressful trying not to be like that. Oh, so you were kind of trying not to be like it because it was a special occasion. But you're because because for me, I would find that stressful, that idea of eating in an atmosphere where someone was going to take the mick out of me for dropping my fork. I'd just be like, oh, God, you know, I want to eat in a kind of relaxed way. And yeah, I mean, certainly our dinner table would have been all about the conversation and not about the food. And yeah. uh, but but nice conversation, intellectual yeah. conversation. You know. Yeah, yeah. well, if your mum was round our dinner table at that time in Manchester, we all would have gone, like, kind of looked at one another with a bit of an eye roll and sort of, you know, you know what I mean? It, yeah. It, and, and quite, you know, appalling behaviour, really. But um, it, I, I did crave, I did crave that, because when I eventually, you know, did go round to other people's houses and, and and eventually kind of go out to restaurants you could see that oh my god this is so much better people expressing themselves you know my wife ellie her family are kind of political theatrical musicians and actors and believe it or not i can barely get a word in and and but the but the you know the conversations around the they talk about everything Everything's up for grabs and everybody has an opinion and everybody's kind of got their part to play in it and it's lively and alive and, and you know, just, I love that now. But I do find myself, I'm a kind of a, a silent eater still. Mm. You know? And, and do you find that when you're in that kind of atmosphere that you want to act the clown because that's the familiar it's, it's, it's something that I do in every walk of life. If there's a space, you know, I think it's an opportunity to be the village idiot. Yeah. And, and, and I've, I've tempered that, you know, I'm nearly 55. It's taken for me a long time. But, yeah, there is an urge. There is an urge. And, and, it's, um, and, it, and it's noticed. It's a, it's a known thing, you know. And, and my wife will say, no, look, okay. When the gaps arrive, you do not have to fill them with being the clown. I'm quite funny at times as well. And so there must be a bit of ego there to say, like, yeah, here we go. Here's my opportunity to be funny. You know, and quite often they land. But, you know, I've tempered it. I've tempered it down. But you are. You're very funny. And that is one of your that's one of the charms of you is that. You're always I mean, that's certainly that's one of the things I love about you whenever I see you. Uh, that you're you've got a little twinkle in your eye and you're kind of looking for the funny in whatever situation which I totally resonate with because 
why not? I'm always looking for the innuendo in any situation. And uh, especially when you're teaching and you you feel you can feel innuendo coming towards you and you're like, am I going to am I going to? Am I? Oh, it's here. (laughs) But I'm scanning the room to see, is this all right to go with the innuendo or is it not? And it's like that thing of of being constantly alert of and aware of all the people around the table so that you can judge whether someone's fork drop is meat or whether it's actually not you know whether you need to just stop and say nothing absolutely absolutely and I think you know it's it's I I guess I think I have to stop because you know I'm not from a sort of foodie background and I've made a career portfolio career in food um I feel as if I you know I can't just go I'm a food expert and talk food I've got to sort of fill in where I think my gaps are with Oh, I know a bit about food, but I can be a bit funny mm. as well. And I think that makes me, a, you know, a bit more formed and, and, and comfortable. And it works particularly, you know, like you and I, we, we get asked to sort of host a stage. I'm much more comfortable being the person stood next to the expert asking the questions because it gives me an opportunity to just kind of stand back a little bit and punctuate the whole thing with one or two uh, observations, which you know might be insightful, but mostly might be just a bit daft <laughs> or a bit rude. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I definitely that's your strength is is to kind of to be there. Uh, I mean, I think I would say that it varies how much you've had to drink. <laughs> do I get better or do I just get worse? You get less able to judge. Uh, whether something is too rude <laughs> no break. here he is lammy no brakes or gears there he goes watch out <laughs> but no but that is that's definitely your strength is is that um that ability it's almost like um sparring isn't it it's like uh, like seeing boxers dance around each other it's it's not the punching that you that is actually the interesting bit it's watching them dance around each other and that kind of it's almost like capoeira or one of those kind of you know fight do you know capoeira i do i do yeah yeah the it's sharp it's witty you yeah. know yeah yeah god we're funny aren't we oh we're so funny yeah aren't we, aren't we though but I do think it's it's an interesting thing. When I was a teenager, mm. I uh, because I came from a background where, uh, in a very different way from what it sounds like your background, but nurturing wasn't foremost. So I felt like I kind of had to find my own way. And so my my thing that I found was being spiky and funny. And I used to actually poke people in the stomach when I saw them. So they'd come up and I'd be like, all right, and I'd get a jab in before they'd, you know, and it's like in the soft part of their body. It's, I mean, when I think about it now, I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? What? It's like that instinct to um, jab and yeah. to be funny as well. Then I was funny and I'd always, there was this, because um, I, uh, growing up at Moncton, which, you know, the commune, um, there was this thing of clowns and the, the the traditional like if you look back at Shakespearean time the traditional clown was there to point out people's airs and graces I guess yeah. and so like you'll see that sometimes at festivals there'll be a, someone clowning and they're following people around and mimicking them or I mean that's there's clowns in all walks of life aren't there but it was yeah. like I thought that's what I can do because I can see this stuff I'm gonna just say it it's like no nobody had ever said to me maybe don't say that it's hurtful maybe don't poke people in the stomach it's all right for you to go towards them and hug them you know it's like no this works and and this way nobody can get in first and and kind of turn the tables on me because I'm gonna say the more outrageous thing yeah no, I, I think that it's it's a strong impulse, isn't it? Yeah, I'm glad that <laughs> I'm glad that I learned not to do that. And now it's like now what I do instead is is I see that stuff and I can make an assessment. 
is this funny? And and the difference is that I'm trying to be generous with it and I'm trying to kind of bring people towards me rather than, you know, because it is... Yeah, <laughs> rather than poke them painfully in the stomach. <laughs> what an Egypt. So it sounds like your childhood was very much, I mean, I'm struggling to imagine, so no vegetables, just this kind oh, yeah. of... Yeah, there was, there were vegetables. Vegetables, um, you know, they were, everybody says this, don't they? But they were kind of cooked well in advance of of everything, like almost pureed. Um, but there, there wasn't anything that I wouldn't eat. I was quite adventurous the only thing that I wouldn't eat is my mum used to make tripe and onions with and she'd just douse it in vinegar and that just the, the smell of that was awful and and you know e- even if I was presented that at St John I couldn't you know I couldn't eat that it's just um yeah that was that was just a bit too far Tripe is visceral, isn't it? I mean, the, well, I mean, it literally is visceral. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's something of the, yeah, you can smell the poo. Yeah, yeah, oh. you can. I know, I know. And yet I've had Andriette, which is, you know, a different smell of poo in a sausage. So what is Andriette? So Andriette is the lower intestines of a pig. It's a French sausage, which basically... It's, it's, it's a sausage, but kind of almost celebrates the fact that it's kind of not necessarily thoroughly cleaned out of faecal matter. Wow. Well, yeah. it's when you're saying it celebrates the flavour or it uses the actual microbes or something? Bit, well, I'm sure the microbes are in there, but it's, it's a sort of peasanty, cultural sort of low end, uh, uh, relatively unhygienic sausage yeah is that from like Lyon is that where Andriette is from I think it is you know like that they're famous for their offal aren't they yeah 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 Um, and and enjoyed it it was okay you know it didn't it wasn't that bad but it was a kind of I enjoyed the cultural aspect of it and and this and and the the fact that it's kind of scraped together with sort of bits and bobs that other people wouldn't necessarily go anywhere near and, and but yet I still can't apply that to tripe. I remember um, going into railing as a young lad and you go to different countries and, and you get presented with salamis and smoked salmon and smoked cheeses for breakfast and you think wow this is so cool and I remember that's when my palate became attuned to those different flavors and and again based on my kind of imposter syndrome in the food world when I looked into it more the the the, the sort of charcuterie element or the cured meat element of, of food really appealed to me because it kind of it was the beginning of cookery and historically and culturally significant uh, a significance um, all the way back from our ancestors who who did it born out of necessity and it and there was no discrimination between whether you were from an advanced civilization civilization like the romans or the or the Mayans or the Egyptians, uh, or whether you were from an indigenous tribe in the in the jungle. All of these products, the more I looked into it, there was evidence that everybody had their own version of it. And it was even a bit mind-blowing. You know, there, there were people on one side of the world that were making things that they didn't even know people existed outside of their environment, never mind the notion of a world and the other side of it. And at the same time, another set of people were making things. And I just thought, God, that's big knowledge. It's almost innate. And, and, and I thought, I want a bit of that. You know, most brilliant products, charcuterie that are made uh, well and traditionally 
and you will always get a kind of facsimile factory commercial version of something which is brilliant and traditional so the traditional things always get my squirters going <laughs> that's a phrase yeah i know it's not something that appears on any packet of charcuterie it gets your squirters going but you know what i mean it's sort of like your body kind of wants to break it down and i'm almost salivating as i'm talking to you and, it, and it's a sort of human biological response to something mm. uh, which is again you know to me is a is a, is a sign of of, of quality Mm, mm. It's the it's the opposite of those kind of rushed dinners as a kid. It's oh, God, I'm really enjoying the slowness of, of this, and you know it, it kind of suits my palate as well as my sort of quiet eating mode. Mm, mm. I mean, I the my, I think my strongest memory of. Um, of charcuterie being a, a just so joyful to me is because I can't uh, necessarily eat all charcuterie because sometimes it has dextrose in it, which um, it, especially in Spain for some mm -hmm. reason they seem to put all sorts in their in their charcuterie and uh, and uh, so dextrose can be made from wheat and so I can't eat that. And we went to we were on holiday in in southern France, and it uh, the clouds came in, and it really it was just like oh it's rubbish here. And we looked on the weather report, and if we drove down to Spain, <laughs> then the sun was there. And so we drove down to San Sebastian, and nice. we drove in drove into this underground car park, and then we came out of the car park into this. Uh, like a kind of market but supermarket and so and it had fish all these incredible huge fish all around the the place and you know and in it almost I'd I mean I'd seen fish markets here but never quite in that way huge fish and all looking like they'd literally leapt out the sea and all the guys kind of misting them and put nice on and you know that whole kind of tender care of the mm. produce Brilliant. and anyway we went into the supermarket tea bit and there was a charcuterie section and I was like oh let's have a look see if I can eat any of this and we kept asking them uh I dextrosa you know and uh and they were like oh sorry yeah 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 and uh, and then Nick found this one chorizo that had nothing in it was just mm -hmm. salt and pork and paprika and garlic mm. and and so we and so we took it home and it was one of those obviously we were just cutting it into slices it was a quite a narrow gauge but the fat and it was warm by the time we got it home it was warm and the fat was kind of on that point of glistening yeah uh, and because when fat melts, it really carries the flavour. And it was the most, it was creamy and fruity and garlicky. And like you're saying, that kind of concentrated umami meat flavour. And whilst I'm not a massive meat eater and, and certainly wasn't back then, it was it was like we got the essence of San Sebastian and bought mm. it back. I totally get that. I totally get that. That's, you know, something which has that kind of intensity, which evokes a place, it evokes uh, the skill and the, and the care and the quality and um, has so much to give, you know, chocolatey, spicy, fatty, smoky, you know, it's, um, mm. it, it, it's, a, it's a real pleasure. But it's a simple thing as well. It's not complicated. The methodology doesn't get in the way. Mm. You just kind of know you're enjoying it. Yeah, it's something. I mean, you just literally slice it and 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 eat it. the The whole way that you eat charcuterie is not generally as as a kind of. I mean, I guess people do put it in meals and whatever, but it, it tends to be something you eat before or or as a separate course or a snack or. And so mm. you really focus on that. Don't yeah, you? you're not yeah. distracted. Yeah, yeah, I do. And do you remember? Do you remember the first time you went out to uh, a restaurant? Do you remember that feeling of, oh God, you know, what do you do? Which fork am I supposed to use? And it gets through all of that. You don't. There's no sort of worry about how you go about it. You just kind of do it in a, in a singular fashion. 
Mm. Are you saying, do you remember the first? Because I actually don't know if I do remember the first restaurant. We we didn't really eat out at restaurants when I was a kid. No, we, we didn't. We didn't. In fact, it's, well, the first, I do remember the first restaurant. Do you remember Bernie Inns? Okay, so yeah. Bernie Inns, right. For some reason, um, we, instead of being given fireworks on bonfire nights, we'd go to Bernie Inns. And I remember sort of like getting on the bus as a family and, and heading from Burnage where we were down Kingsway to where the Burnage Inns was. And, and, you know, it's always kind of raining and you, you could see other people's fireworks and other people's firework parties going off. And, um, and then arriving at Burnie Inns. And I, I remember I thought, oh, you know, I was a bit, peeved that we were going out for the first time ever we weren't having fireworks um but i remember they used to do this thing where they had curls of butter on a on a saucer and bread being brought as a sort of you know nobody ordered it it just came and getting kind of word blindness when a menu is is presented to you you just think what is this what, what is this this stuff and it empty because everybody else was having a firework party <laughs> and some <laughs> thoroughly annoyed waiter thinking I could have been having a firework party if it wasn't for you here now and uh, and I think I had a chicken or a quarter chicken quarter roast chicken and asking my dad if it was struggling to cut it with a knife and a fork and asking my dad whether it was okay to use my hands to, to pick it up in this kind of restaurant environment. And he goes, yeah, yeah, of course you can. And that was a relief. You know, the etiquette of eating already was a stressful thing with my family and then kind of highlighted in a going out version of it. And, and for my dad to sort of make it easier to pick, pick it up. And I thought, oh, okay, that's much better than worrying about which knife and fork to use, you know? How lovely that he said that, because I know a lot know. of parents wouldn't. They'd be like, no, 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 you behave, you be nice, we're out, you be nice, and tell their children off and actually make the whole experience anxious for them. I'm yeah. a big fan of eating everything with your hands, and if anyone has a problem with it, they can sod off, frankly. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, and, you know, elbows on the table and all of that. I mean, come on, just be comfortable and enjoy the food. Well, I think the irony is that that a lot of that kind of those manners, you know, no elbows on the table and only eating with knife and fork and that those are kind of uh, bourgeois, maybe people who are becoming bourgeois and feel that that is somehow an expression of their refinement. But actually people who are genuinely uh you know rolling in money or whatever they don't care whether they put their yeah. elbows on them and and so it's like somehow coming from a background of of privation it's like people having a telephone voice and then their ordinary voice that yeah. kind of hyacinth bouquet thing isn't it yeah that, yeah that what you want is for people outside the house to see you like i sometimes hear people saying to their children you wait till we get home and i think well what why are you going to do something different at home is yeah. that we don't want you to see us berating our kids in a violent way or, it, you know, because that's not bourgeois. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, I tell you, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of, it's, it's a false perception of something which is, which is okay. But I'll tell you one thing, I I, my brother, he used to sometimes make this noise when he was eating and I really could have punched his face in. Where it was almost like, oh my, that noise. You know, what that, was it? What it was, was the noise? Yeah, occasionally it was a sort of a, like a, and I just thought, it stopped me in my tracks. <laughs> it went right to my core, you know, and at that point I could have throttled him. Isn't that a funny thing? My, uh, oh, my mum won't mind. My mum used to hate my youngest sister's dad. Um, breathing. <laughs> <laughs> he used to laugh because she'd say, 
stop breathing. We were like, <laughs> he literally can't stop breathing. It's almost like those intimate noises that people make, people yeah. that you love or yeah. are living very closely with, they get under your skin because yeah. they, I guess you can't ignore them, can you? The lip smack or the or the noisy breath or the fingernail chewing or whatever. Mm. Stop yeah. breathing. I know, imagine, okay. Do you own it when you're you're talking and eating and food comes flying out and hits somebody squarely between the eyes? <laughs> Do you immediately go to I've, I've just spat something here? Sorry about that. I'm an I'm a, I own up. I'm an owner of that. Do of course, you? of course. I mean, it's like when Nana farts and everyone pretends not to have heard. Yeah. I would say Nana. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Call them out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, no, it's not kind of calling it out, but it's almost like, well, it, the worst thing is for something to happen that's embarrassing and for you, for no one to mention it. I was just think to fuse it and make it okay. You know, look, everyone spits food. I mean, actually, not everyone. Is this happening to you regularly? <laughs> <laughs> no. No. I'm going to ask Ellie about that for verification. As, as, as I get older and older and I'm losing more of my own teeth, food is projected more often across the dining table. But, you know, <laughs> It's that space at the front where you've lost the two front teeth, isn't it? That's the problem. Yes. yes. <laughs> Just so that no one's imagining you like that. Steve has all his own teeth. Yeah, watch this. This is just for Naomi. <laughs> so Steve has just dried his teeth out and stuck his top lip up. I know that you have a fondness for Tuscany mm. because whenever you would come back in the summer, I'd just be so very jealous. And it sounded like you really had just a beautiful time there. And if people don't know what you look like, you're married to the most beautiful blonde haired woman and you have a whole slew of beautiful blonde haired girls. And so uh, the idea of you all in Tuscany, just with the sun kind of bronzing you, <laughs> it's almost too much. So what, what did you eat when you were there? They, they love a family. You know, those places where you go that are busy and somebody takes your youngest child off you and carries them over their head to get to a, a table and nothing is a problem and eating al fresco outside and, and, and the different times that you eat, you know, it's just kind of endless. You can go into the night. Everything is amazing and, and vibrant and peasanty and, and kind of sophisticated at the same time it's a it's a it's a total enjoyment what i love about italy as well is that there's this kind of pride and joy in regionalism culturally they're very fixed in a kind of identity and food is very much part of that and i like that i like that kind of we are what we eat as much as enjoying other people so we had some friends who lived in Lamarque for a while mm. and uh, and he's quite a foodie and he likes to kind of learn things he's he's more like Nick like he he likes to uh, learn the correct way to do something or he, you know he's a bit sciencey I guess and anyway he wanted to make I think there was wild asparagus. I might be remembering it wrong, but I think they'd been picking wild asparagus. And then there was also a rabbit and he didn't know how to cook a rabbit. So he asked kind of the local nonna that they knew how mm. to, to cook. And he just called her up and he said, I'm cooking this rabbit. Do you have any tips? And she was like, don't move. I'm coming. <laughs> and then she arrived like 10 minutes later and, uh, you know, literally kind of ushered him to the side of the kitchen and just showed him how you should cook a rabbit and, you know, cooked up oh, yeah. the, the little liver and the, and the, the kidneys and the, and all of this different things. And then made the stew and, and, uh, and he, but he said that the way she did it was so, it was like, this is the one and only way you should ever cook a rabbit. If you do it any other way, I will find you and kill you. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? It's that the knowledge is there, the desire to show and tell, 
because there's this pride in how you do it properly. But, you know, that generosity of spirit, which I just find so engaging. I, I had something similar happen to me going, we, we, we went to this place called Barga, and, and Barga is, is kind of like an old town, a bit like Luca, you know, where there has like the old ramparts and it's got the old town and the extended town outside of it. It's really lovely. People that we were on holiday with, uh, Ross and I, we went to the butchers and we wanted to make a porchetta. Very poor Italian, but, you know, even without the, with the language barrier, I think we kind of got across what we wanted. And, and, and that engagement across the counter was really lovely. It, it wasn't a sense that you were putting them out. They were really keen to kind of help and, and, and help you construct the best porchetta you, you want. And, and a true porchetta is made from a small suckling pig, right? Which I found, you know, we both found that to be a bit difficult, an animal that's had no life at all, a very short life, but we were very keen to do something traditional and, you know, there was a sort of dichotomy of wanting to do that, wanting this person to know that we wanted to do it authentic and for them to go, yeah, you, you really need a suckling pig. And um, anyway, it transpired that instead of saying small pig, we actually said small bit of pig. And when it came to purchasing the pork and all the other ingredients, we were we were given a sort of a, a, a loin and a belly joined that was boned out, and that was a it was actually a huge relief that through the language barrier and the translation we, we'd actually circumnavigated this issue of suckling pig, unless they just thought, no, you you guys don't really. I've seen your souls in your eyes, and although I don't really understand what you're saying, I know that you don't want to go through with that. I think the interesting thing is that we assume that we won't find that in the UK and that there are butchers that know their meat and uh, and would take that same care. And all right, we don't have the same traditions, we don't have the same cuts even, but that there is still that willingness. I mean, actually, there's a, a butchers in Bridport that because mm. I only started eating meat well, I've probably actually been eating meat about 20 years now, but very, very slowly at first and then never with massive gusto. Uh, and so I used to go into this when we first moved to Bridport, I used to go into this butchers and say, oh, I'm not quite sure, you know, I think I want to do this and is this the right cut? And they would take their time explaining it to me rather than yeah. saying, oh, why don't you know your meat or just palming me off with the most expensive bit. They really did take their time. And I found that fantastic because there's a lot of fear around, like you were saying, your mum overcooking the turkey by four hours. It, that yeah. actually, uh, when someone takes that time, it's really, really wonderful. Absolutely, I totally get that. And I think that's great service, that sort of collaboration. Oh, I had a funny occasion in a butcher's once. On my on my courses, I, I sort of kind of champion the low cuts and things that are perhaps, you know, not highfalutin and but are kind of user-friendly, you know, adaptable. You can do loads of things with them. And uh, one of my favourite joints of pork is, is called the chump because it's really versatile. You can roast it, you can brine it, you can air dry it, you can turn it into bacon. I've had enough pulled pork for a lifetime, but you can turn it into a slow and low cooked version. Really, really generous in terms of what you can do with it, piece of meat and cheap. And I went to a butcher's once, and I think it was in the Malvern Hills. And I walked into the butcher shop and I said, uh, can, I, um, can I have a chump roast? please and the butcher went kind of oh god you're the second person to ask me for that you've been on one of steve lamb's courses haven't you <laughs> and i said i am steve lamb <laughs> How funny, oh my yeah. god. And, and he said oh god people people who've come on your courses are asking for, for the chop roast and we do, you know i couldn't believe i couldn't believe the amount of people that were doing that. i thought that's great Great. I don't expect to be recognised, but brilliant. 
Brilliant. That is flashed across the counter. Oh, bloody hell, you've been to that Steve Lamb's course, haven't you? I really like slow cuts because they've got all those hardworking bits in them that when they break down, they get all kind of gelatinous and delicious. And I love that. But I know a lot of people and I also love it because it's good for your gut. So mm-hmm. it's like the the part of me that that loves it just for the texture. And then there's part of me that loves it also because I just love things that are good for me. But a lot of people might find that texture weird or uh, they or they want things that they can cook quickly. I know, I mean, you were saying you've had enough pulled pork for a lifetime, but but actually a lot of people don't necessarily factor in the time to spend the time cooking something slowly. And so all those little cuts that are fillet or loin or or any or chops or any of those bits, they're they're the bits that tend to to get sold and cooked aren't they yeah taking time and you know cooking is a sort of my favorite type of cooking over a you know a kind of a long period sunday i love cooking on a sunday you know six music on in the background glass of wine on the go you know no kind of pressure really enjoying the whole kind of the prep and you know people coming in and through the kitchen and you know as you said before quite a, a large family three fantastic girls two dogs cat two rabbits you know there's a kind of traveling circus coming through I know what I'm doing you know I'm half decent but I'm not focusing entirely on it the music in the background thoughts coming through my head I'm kind of engaged but sort of semi switched off that's those are my favorite times in the kitchen Mm, that sounds lovely I like to listen to podcasts actually that's my thing it's like a little a little moment to yourself it can be it can be lovely can't it just a little moment of preparing some food and I often do that when I'm batch cooking actually and like making a massive batch of curry or whatever it is to fill up the freezer and and it feels like and I'll set aside an afternoon Mm. and that feels super indulgent but actually it's paying forward for meals when you're stressed well one of the things we've talked about before because obviously I I swim in in any weather I don't wait for it to be fair Mm -hmm. I swim whatever and when it's when there's a heavy sea mist uh it cuts out everything in your peripheral vision Mm. and it's almost like you know when you put a bag on a sheep's head they go to sleep or you can do the same with a chicken actually if you trace down hang on (laughs) did you not know that is that a thing? Yes. If you put a bag on a sheep's head, I mean, obviously you have to get to the sheep in order to put the bag on it. But if you can do that, they will just go to sleep. And with a chicken, you trace a line down from its tail down to its head and keep on tracing. And the, the chicken will keep looking at your finger and go into a trance. So it's a way of getting a chicken to stay in the same place. Oh my God, you now are, as well as the sea swimmer, a chicken whisperer. Oh, for sure, I'm a chicken. Well, I grew up, when I was at, at, uh, in the commune, that was one of my duties, was looking after the chickens. And uh, and I actually, and also because I was doing my art exams and stuff, so I all my uh, portfolio was just full of drawings of chickens. And so I'd spend quite a lot of time with them. And cleaning out the I mean it's which was lovely and that kind of sounds like bucolic but the cleaning out the chicken sheds which was part of the the thing Mm -hmm. chickens have enormous fleas I mean like yeah buses yes which are you you have chickens don't you got two yeah but they but it's the cleaning out the shed was the and also getting getting eggs off broody hens that Mm. want to peck you going in there with the glove (laughs) See, the chickens in our family come with us everywhere. They're, they're, they're a bit pet. We, we, we love the eggs and it's just the two of them. So they, they kind of, they don't get broody. They're very happy to sort of like give their eggs over willingly. Um, but, you know, it's, um, it's a funny thing that putting your hand in, knowing that it's not going to hurt if you get pecked. But there's a sort of, you know, there's a trepidation in there, isn't there? It's like going up to an electric fence, isn't it? And going, uh, 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 
<laughs> but actually we did have chickens that were really quite vicious and no they could draw blood so it would hurt and you did have so you had to learn to hypnotize them very much but also our chicken i mean we had masses of chickens like 30 you know odd chickens but they lived with the cockerel and so mm. i don't know if that makes them more broody but also i think maybe watching the chickens evade the cockerel's advances looked really quite uh it, it was very very keen and i think they were probably a lot of the time just irritated yeah <laughs> like the kind of chicken form of pmt uh, <laughs> <laughs> all i am is an egg factory yeah you come in, you come in here with your big hand <laughs> and your glove on yeah. you said your your chickens go with you are you saying that when you go yeah. like because you go away in the summer don't you do you take your chickens with you we do as daft as it may seem we've got this teepee and uh, the girls are at an age where camping is still okay i mean you know we quite often rock up in my in-laws bottom field just up the road teepees up there at the minute and the last few weekends, we up sticks and it's two dogs, the cat, the two rabbits and the chickens, and they all come with us, which uh, seems like madness. Yeah, the girls are really taken with the animals and, and there's a sense of, oh, no, I don't. If we're going and we're leaving them, even though they could fend for themselves, they don't like that. You know, there's a, there's a comfort in all of us being there in this mad sort of camping trip so, so it's a, there must be a sort of the camping is 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 one thing the change of scenery is one thing the whole different approach to how you kind of live in a teepee over the course of a weekend is is very different but the similarities are with the animals mm. you know I think that's that's where that comes from there's a sort of comfort in it for them I can see that working for the dogs. I mean, dogs like to be wherever their humans are, but cats, not so bothered, and chickens, very much not bothered. Yeah, I'm sure they don't give two hoots uh, about it, but uh, Captain, our cat, see, we're the only males in our household, and, um, you know, he's he's quite incredible. He, he's, you know, he's comfortable wherever he is. And uh, we've been further afield and he just kind of gets on with it and comes back. You know, there's never any fear that he's going to run off or try and get back home. He's, he's quite unique in that way. Well, that's a, that is super unique. I mean, my cat won't even go. She'll go out the back of the house. She won't even go out the front of the house <laughs> in case something is there she doesn't like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's amazing. What an image of you all travelling around as a little circus with your teepee. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, food in those environments, is it, it's great, you know, kind of very much more relaxed. I mean, I like the girls in the kitchen, but that's a slightly different vibe, you know, at home. It's a bit, I've got, I've kind of got one eye on making sure they don't cut their fingers off and make sure that they're tidying up and kind of helping and trying to impart best ways to do it. But yet kind of camping food and cooking is, I'm much more relaxed. You know, we're going to cook it on fire. There's all sorts of kind of risks and, and, and stuff to do with that. But no, I'm much more uh, at ease with them cooking and helping in, in in a camping environment than I am in a kind of domestic setup. And there's something really treaty, I think, about uh, eating when you're camping, and in, in that you don't, the expectations are different, and also you don't have all your kind of comforts. You can't have lounge on the sofa or whatever. So, so your uh, your experience then of things that are delicious or nourishing or anything like that is heightened, isn't it? So yeah. everything always tastes that bit more delicious. It does, yeah. You're right. And you give it the time, which is like your cooking and, you know, your kind of gentle cooking experience at home maybe replicated a bit more in that you're just allowing yourself the time to do it. It's an event, isn't it? It's a, it, it every meal when you're kind of doing stuff, outside it becomes more of an event kind of takes a little bit more not so much planning or I guess planning but you know there's there's you know setting the fire working out where you're going to 
prep when to you know which pot can we use because you've only got two if uh do, do you know what i mean it's all a bit more um applied in that way and, and the payoff seems to be slightly more heightened as mm. you said because you've kind of perhaps taken a different approach to it yeah and there's i think there's an element of like you're saying you've only got two pots you can't kind of you haven't got five different beautifully sharpened knives and a mm. and a you know a chinoise for passing your sauce or whatever it, none of that is possible and therefore you focus on what is possible and there's a kind of feeling of it's almost like uh, you've won something when you've produced the meal because it's it's, you know, it's come together yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it is like a sort of you know whoa, it's all come together whereas in the kitchen you kind of expect it to come together exactly yes it's you take it for granted that's what it is it's not taking it for granted and anything that you don't I mean it's it's a, a a kind of life lesson there isn't it it's it's the things that you do when you're completely there in the moment you, you're you haven't got any other calls when you're camping you haven't any other calls on your time so you're able to completely focus on the cooking and then you know that everyone is going to totally enjoy the meal and be there and you're all in the same space with your chickens and your cat and your dogs and and that that I mean, it's like it kind of takes us back to the beginning. It's ex the exact opposite of what you talked about your childhood meals. It yes. is having everyone there in a relaxed space where the, everyone is willing this meal to be a good and nourishing one and they want to be there. Yeah, I mean, that's really insightful of you. It is. It's a feeling that I recognise without actually ever having applied it to that uh, original sitting around the table in Kenwood Avenue in Burnage. It, it, it kind of, it, it, it's the opposite of that. Thanks for shedding the light on that one. <laughs> That's all right. It's my pleasure. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to pour myself a... Fizzy water. That's Fizzy water is the horror for doing any kind of presenting. <laughs> Whenever I'm teaching all day, I uh, I always I'd love to drink fizzy water. We have a soda stream, mm -hmm. and but I I make myself drink still water all day because otherwise I'm just belching at the students. <laughs> it's <laughs> terrible. I don't mind if it's if I'm doing it in person, but when I'm teaching online, there's somehow I I feel like I don't know. A belch is very visceral, isn't it? It's right in your face. <laughs> Yeah, right in your face from my face. <laughs> it's too close. I it's know. like your brother's mouth I click. Know. Yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> and my and my spitty food thing. Yeah, I'm literally spitting my food in their face. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do um, we ever get allowed out to be in these places? Well, I do wonder actually after the pandemic if they will allow us out again. Yeah, they'd be like, yeah. yeah, everyone else, but not you two. Yeah. Your spitters. Exactly. I've not had any phone calls of you. There they go. Invitations. <laughs> no, I'm having to make my own entertainment. <laughs> this is why we're doing this, right? <laughs> I'm just desperate to talk to someone. <laughs> uh, oh, dear. Well, look, Steve, I've had you for a long time. Oh, that's, that is a wonderful innuendo, and I don't mean that <laughs> at all. <laughs> We've, Steve, we've Hi. been talking for a long time, is what I meant. Yeah, gotcha, understood. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's stand down. Stand yeah. down is what I'm saying to myself. Yeah. And uh, and it, it is, I could always talk to you for longer. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's really lovely to get, in fact, I think I had the same thought with Gil, is that, that we never get time because we kind of pass like ships in the night when, whenever we're teaching at River Cottage. Mm. No, we don't really get time to sit down and, and have a proper chat. It's always these kind of passing, just a little conversation and, and left wanting more. So it's an absolute treat to have uh, been able to chat with you so long and just to get a sense of who you are. I know that anyone who's been on any of your courses oh you have this special talent which is to remember you remember everyone's name and something about them which is almost uncanny that you can remember that because I struggle even to remember my own name sometimes 
It's true. It's true. And I say that with any without any sense of ego. I mean, it could be like Asperger's or something. You know, it's I really celebrate it, but I do get this very clear recall. I get a flashcard of their name and something about them, and it just you know it it kind of comes like it's that. Be- you could be you would make the perfect maitre d because that is that that's literally the the skill isn't it that you need is to because it and it makes people feel seen i mean i can see people when you meet them they just melt because that it's such a lovely gift and uh yeah i i treasure it in you thank you thank you <laughs> whatever your name is yeah <laughs> with the hemorrhoids (laughs) (laughs) and I really really look forward to seeing you in person soon and maybe passing each other uh, when we're teaching somewhere Um, I will put all the information about you in the show notes Mm -hmm. so we'll talk about that afterwards but but people can uh, you are doing all sorts of amazing things and uh, branching out uh, and so people should really catch up with, with where you're going to be teaching and, and what you're doing this next year I think the phrase is watch this space yeah very much so hey listen what an absolute joy it's been a pleasure and um, really really lovely to chat thanks for inviting me along and um, potentially we'll get to meet up soon and uh, you're a bit more professional and uh, a bit more keen than I am with the sea swimming bit. But hey, maybe one day I might see you out there. I would love that. You know I'll hold your head under. <laughs> and poke me in the stomach. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and I would just spit water in your face. <laughs> I look forward to it immensely. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, it's a date. Well, I barely need to say anything after that except I'm still wiping the tears out of my eyes and I'm drinking some fizzy water <laughs> which as you already know is a massive mistake on my part my promise not to belch and I thank you for listening all the way to the end please uh, leave me uh, a rating or a review on um, one of the platforms wherever you find this podcast and subscribe if you would like to oh, it makes me very happy and helps other people find the podcast and you can find all the information about Steve and what he's doing in the future in the show notes which you can find on my website or on the apple podcasts and i hope you have a lovely week and hopefully see you next week 